I'm Matt Miller of the Ditch That Textbook Podcast, a proud member of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to right now. The opinions expressed are those of the individual hosts. Make sure you check out all the other great educational podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, are you working with kids, you know, family members, colleagues whose feelings are just you know, got them down or, you know, they're just confused by them or they're not really understanding what they're feeling. Well, the, the Feeling Alphabet Activity Set by Edward K.S. Wang and Karen Gross is a resource to help students, families, teachers, and community members identify their feelings. If you cannot name feelings, then you cannot tame them. Learn more at KarenGrossEducation.com. Look under the book tab and find the Feeling Alphabet Activity Set. You'll be glad you did. Hey, I have great news. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is now on Amazon Music. That's too cool. So now you can ask our friend whose name begins with an A. You know, she might be listening right now, so (laughs) don't want to mention that name. Uh, But you could ask her to play the latest episode for you. That's right. Yeah, and you know what else? Now you can add Teaching Learning Leading K-12 to your Amazon Music library. You could subscribe right there. Hey, welcome back. Steve here. And today I'm talking with Susie Pepper Rollins. She's an amazing author, consultant, and educational innovator. And today we're focused on her new book, Teaching Vulnerable Learners, Strategies for Students Who Are Bored, Distracted, Discouraged, or Likely to Drop Out. Published this year, 2020. Lots to learn. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to share and subscribe. Enjoy. You are listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast for educators, helping you help kids achieve their dreams. And now here's Steve with this week's show. Susie Pepper Rollins is an author, consultant, and educational innovator. Her mission is to create academic success in all learners by embedding instructional practices that create energized, autonomous, focused learners. She's the author of Teaching Vulnerable Leaders, just came out this year by W.W. Norton and two books by ASCD, Learning in the Fast Lane and Teaching in the Fast Lane. Susie's keynotes and workshops are fast-paced, hands-on, and tailored for every content and grade level. Participants leave ready for next day implementation. I can attest to that because I've been in many of those uh, in, in many workshops, so very cool. She, she also partners with districts to support instructional goals and works side-by-side with educators and buildings to move learning. She's the founder of Math in the Fast Lane, a research-based hands-on approach to teaching math in grades three through eight. Today, we're going to focus on her most recent book, Teaching Vulnerable Learners, Strategies for Students Who Are Bored, Distracted, Discouraged, or Likely to Drop Out. Susie, great to have you back on the show. Thanks for joining me today. Say hi to everyone. Hey, Dr. Maletto. Hello, everybody. Well, it's great having you back, and congrats on the new book. That's so awesome. I mean, it's, you're at three now. That's so cool. I'm, I'm worn out. <laughs> I'm worn. These kids are wearing me out. You're not allowed to be worn out now. That's because <laughs> you're supposed to tell me that, yeah, you're working on books four and five at the same time. So, Okay. <laughs> not going to tell me that, huh? <laughs> so, uh, so your new book, Teaching Vulnerable Learners, Strategies for Students Who Are Bored, Distracted, Discouraged, or Likely to Drop Out, Way to go. I mean, like I said, this is your third book. I love the title and I love the, 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 the content in it, you know, but before we get into teaching vulnerable learners, let's start with this. I mean, you're an amazing trainer, consultant for educators. You write useful, practical books and you inspire educators to make the commitment to do what needs to be done to reach all kids. 
What do you like about working with teachers? Well, first of all, I love teachers. And, and isn't it an, it's a great profession? And you can run into a teacher at Kroger and you've never met him or her and you can talk for three hours, right? Yes. It's a family. It's a family. And, and what I love about it is being in classrooms and trying things and then stepping back and saying, oh my gosh, that works so well. Or, or we're never doing that one again. You know what I mean? Yes. But either way, it's fun to just kind of experiment, try things, step back. And, um, and so, no, I just, I love being a teacher. It was the best job I ever had was being a classroom teacher. Um, and it fit me perfectly. And I'm, I'm secretly jealous. And I always want to kind of commandeer their classrooms, classrooms when I'm in there. But sometimes I can show restraint. <laughs> nice. <laughs> this, sometimes. Sometimes. I like the way you added that. <laughs> That's awesome. But you're right. Yes. You know, all you got to do is find out. I, I mean, I, I was walking in a, at a park at a, a university not too long ago. And uh, I was wearing a T-shirt that says, ask me about my podcast. <laughs> and very few people ever asked me about that. But the first ones who did, it was a husband and wife. And they, they said, hey, what, you have a podcast? And I said, sure. And they, and they said, well, what's your podcast? And I told them the name of it, Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12. And they said, we're both retired teachers. And 30 minutes later, <laughs> I go back on my walk. But uh, I thought it was cool that the first ones that asked me about it were teachers. So just like you said, <laughs> it's cool stuff. The, uh, so, so what's a vulnerable learner? Let's get into your book. Well, I'll tell you, I, I chose that because in fact, children are quite breakable and one can make the, the case that we're all vulnerable learners at one time. That it's a long journey from K to 12, right? There are a thousand opportunities for us to falter, to get behind, to get gaps, to have struggles. And so I chose that title Honestly, in a way, Dr. Valetto, it's a mindset of how we view them, because sometimes our vulnerable learners don't seem vulnerable at all. They may have their heads on their desks. They may pop off to something we say. They may act in a way that we're not expecting. They may not be coming at all, or they may disengage. And the reality is that those are symptoms possibly of a child that we may want to reach out to a little bit more. So some of it is how we view our kids because what, you know, it, it's just, it's a long day for them and a lot of years. And so, but what I did in this book is I, I'll tell you how this book started. When I was doing my second book for ASCD, I ran across the most fascinating piece of research. And I thought, you know what, how did I not know that? And it said that ADHD learners were much more likely to be incarcerated than other people. And I thought, how in the world could I not know that? I've taught a ton of these kids, you know, why would I not know that? And so I tucked that little bit of research, you know, with the back of my brain. And then I spent nine months researching this book at three o'clock. And I'm one educator at the kitchen table at 3 a.m., you know, with the cats on my papers, right? I'm, right. I'm, I'm an intellectually curious person and I want to find out why are certain kids with all that we're doing and the way I've always looked at with teaching is it's a very hard job. I'm on my feet all day and I want to do things that have good outcomes, right? Because it's such hard work. Nothing is more heartbreaking than me than if I pour it all out there and it doesn't work out. So I want to find out who in our schools are still, no matter all the great things we're doing, are still struggling and what can we do differently? Because I want to try some different things for certain pockets. So what I did is isolated some groups of kids who are still maybe not doing as well as we had hoped. Well, this, this is a great, yeah, you chose a fantastic topic, um, perfect for the times. And especially now that uh, we're trying to figure out how to get back in school and, and those vulnerable learners are going to be the ones who are most in need of 
some of that attention to get them back uh, in some sort of semblance of school. And, uh, and, and like I'm used to with what you write, it's, it's right on the money. It's easy to read. It's easy to use. And it's uh, very practical. So can I, can I insert something really quickly there? Because sure. to me, a vulnerable learner who's got gaps or behind or for a variety of things that I talk about in the book, it takes courage for them to come to school. It takes courage to show up every day and get on that bus. If I'm behind in math, if I'm struggling, if I'm coming back from a suspension, if I'm having issues at home, it, it, it takes courage to get on that bus, to come in that classroom. It takes courage to be a teacher too. Trust me. <laughs> so I'm just saying, I view these kids as courageous for walking in the door. And you've known me for years. And one of the things I did was work on summer programs and things for kids who'd failed this, failed that. Did, you know, I, my world was just that whole group. And one thing we did as teachers in those summer programs is we switched our mindset and we said, we're so glad you're here. We didn't worry if their cap was on backwards or the pants or they have a belt. You know what I mean? Right. We, we first thing we said every day is we are so, it is so good to see you because I know that it takes courage for them to come. So you can ask a question. I'm going to, I'm going to zip it. <laughs> no, you don't need to zip I'm gonna it. I'm going to let That's you awesome. be the host. How's that? <laughs> I'm good. This works. You can take it off. I'll just, I'm good. I'm good. I, that, that was, that was awesome. Thank you. The, uh, and cause you're so right. It, I mean, that's so on the money. I mean, that's, you know, it's, it's so difficult for them to even want to be there and then to actually be there. <laughs> you know, the number of kids I've dealt with in the past who you're like, you know, Hey, how about you go down the street in the golf cart and see if uh, you see John, you know, or <laughs> insert name and, and sure enough, John's hanging out at the edge of the apartment complex. And so, uh, you know, um, my elf, my golf cart guy goes and says, Hey John, why don't you come on up to school since you're up already? You know, that type of thing. And you know, it's a little bit of everybody trying to get them just to school. So mm -hmm. it's an interesting thing. So let's, let's look, let's take a little drive through some of your chapters here. And uh, in chapter one, and I love the title of this explorers in deaths, which you've got to talk about where you got that, that thought from. Okay. Well, you know, the first chapter is on students with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And this is what started me writing the book. It's mostly boys. They have trouble sitting at desk. And the where that title came from is some researchers call this the explorer gene and theorized that a million years ago, these would have been the guys you sent out to find the new settlement. You sent out as warriors, you sent out to explore. And now they are where? In a desk for seven hours. <laughs> and they are not wired for it. Now here's what's fascinating. Guess what they are wired for? being highly successful entrepreneurs. And I started the chapter with the CEO of JetBlue, who talks openly about his ADHD and how, this is the topic as an adult that they talk about in the ADHD community. They talk about, is it a gift or a curse? And the truth is it's a gift and a curse. They have tremendous gifts. They have, they're some of the most fascinating learners we have and they often become self-employed. Um, but the, but where, where my concern is, though, with this group is they're very good at hyper-focusing. They have a gift for it. That's why they get a gaming and they might give them a science project that they can't turn away from. But you give them a sheet on fractions or adverbs, right? And it doesn't go well. Their brains have a tremendous amount of difficulty sustaining attention on tedium. So school has a lot of that. Hey, I'm a teacher. I try to be compelling, but we also have some work to do. You know what I mean? It's a long day. <laughs> yes. So it is, a, it is difficult. These are some of our challenging kids. And what I'm doing is, is asking us all to step back and maybe reevaluate 
how well they're going because it breaks my heart to know they're not just incarcerated more frequently, Dr. Mileto, it's multiple times. They're not even good at keeping their story straight. You know what I mean? When you dig into it, yes. even if they're telling the truth. And we and, and so they they don't they seem to get in, in anyway, they have more substance abuse issues, emotion. I mean, so we really that I wanted to start with them because they can be a challenge to teach. Okay, I've been a teacher for many years. But when I did the research on this, I made a commitment that I'm going to redouble my efforts, you know, and, and find some strategies that work to help these kids because they have such potential. And it's largely a family trait. It is a medical condition. We can see them on brain screens now, on brain scans, right? So we know that their brains are just different. So that's the challenge I pose is can we step back and rethink how it's going for them? Because the outcomes are not very positive. Many do well, but many do not. And it, it's such a, it really is such a great topic for the, the opening because talk about a very vulnerable learner if the teacher's not, is not up on strategies that they should use or, you know, if it, uh, you know, if their behaviors can become annoying and instead of looking past that, just like you were talking about earlier, the idea of looking past the, <laughs> the hat on backwards and, the, and how the jeans are worn or whatever, um, it's the same thing with some of that, uh, some of those behaviors, I would think. You know, one of the things that really hit me as a teacher, though, because I love my students, you love your students. I'm very imperfect. I apologize every day to students. So, you know, so, but one thing that really hit me is they largely think that educators don't like them because the messages they're getting and we don't do it on purpose. And I've done it is turn around, pay attention don't do that. Stay on, you know what I mean? Stay on focus. Finish. And so all day, you know what I mean? It's so it's, I'm, I'm challenging leaders, administrators to wrap the, let's just wrap our arms around these kids. You know what I mean? And, and, and I'll tell you something, let me tell you something, cause I'm going to forget. One thing I found that was fascinating, Dr. Mileto, on all of my groups of kids, one of the common threads really surprised me. Guess what it was? Extracurricular activities. Get every kid into sports, into chess club, into guitar class, into whatever it is that they want to do, because then they can have a connection at school that's positive, that's not always about academics, and they can get to know their educators in a different uh, mindset than always be on academics. So that was one thing that surprised me, is the value, particularly in middle school, of really finding clubs and sports and, and let them play the drums, you know? Yes. My dad would not let me play the drums as an aside. <laughs> what was he thinking? <laughs> I don't know, but I'm that chapter one. Can I just tell you? <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, um, well, thank you. That's, you know, and I, it's just such an appropriate type topic to start with because I, I doubt there is a teacher that has not had some experience working with an ADHD child and they were asking for, I need help. And, your chapter has help. Do you want to mention a little bit about some of the, you know, one or two of the strategies you have in there? Well, an important task to do, you know, we want to look at their strengths, not just their deficits, find things that are high interest and relevant that will, that will tap them in, shorten their, you know, shorten their uh, assignments with most teachers do. Agendas are great where they get a quick feedback, right? Check. We finished. Check. We finished. It keeps them motivated to keep going. Excellent. Excellent. And, I, and that's one of the things I want to point out about your book that I, I love is that where I, when I talk about practical and easy to use, this is part of it is that you, you don't just talk about the situation and, you know, and, uh, and uh, share the, the, what can happen in the, in the, 
and uh, the research and such, you actually take all that, put it together, tell those stories, and then you give um, strategies to help the teacher work with these children. And I think that's awesome. Well, so, thank you. so let's, let's move forward. Let's go to chapter two. And uh, it, the title of it is Tough in Any Language. You talk about the growing ELL populations throughout the U.S. And in this section, you note, it's helpful for general education teachers and leaders to have a basic understanding of the stages of language acquisition. This knowledge enhances understanding of why students might respond or not to questions in the hallway or, or might be achieving below our expectations. Could you talk about this? Yeah, I mean, we have added a million uh, new students who are not speaking English at home, right? Um, now imagine what that's like for a student to be learning about parabolas or momentum or crustaceans or Shakespeare and it's in a different language. I Physics broke me. I was a vulnerable learner in physics and I was listening to it in English. So I'm trying to think what that would be like, right? So one thing that can happen in buildings is we might see our students in the lunchroom, right? And it seems like they're, they're just communicating just fine. But if I take that into the classroom and we're talking about the causes of the American Revolution, for example, why can't I get them to participate? It's largely because there are those stages. Think about how, how long it takes to truly become fluent in a new language. It takes years. It takes years. So you have some of our new learners uh, can just are at the stage of saying hello and I need to go to the bathroom or can I get some water and you have the next stage complete sentences the next stage a little more so if you're asking questions that are way out here about parabolas right it may not be in line with their stage of learning now some concrete strategies we can do uh, first of all one thing I have so got to work on and that is slowing down <laughs> facing students, slowing down, chunking, and making it visual. But guess what? The more visuals I use, like if I can introduce stations, let me model. We're going to go here. Now we're going to go here to this lab and show. Guess what? That helps all students. Very much so. so. One, one, one thing that's super encouraging about is, is that the, the, a lot of these strategies that they have, they have everybody. It's just really good, solid teaching. And when I'm re, when I was researching this book, I was Obviously, uh, it was a resounding thing for me that some of the things that really great teachers do, it's why every student does well in those classrooms. And I don't have all the answers. And I state that in the introduction because these are some students who are, have specific challenges. But there are strategies we can do in the gen ed classroom that will really, really help them. Now, you know, you've seen some of my work. I use tip charts. I use pictures with vocabulary. We remember with a picture so much better than just words. So adding a picture on our anchor chart of a parabola or whatever we're teaching. I'm on those parabolas. They're very exciting. <laughs> it's a very very cool. exciting topic I'm sharing with everyone. <laughs> so, yes. Yeah, so I think, yeah, I've got some real concrete strategies in there for our English language learners. Here's the dilemma we're in. As you know, how much time should be spent teaching English and how much time teaching science content and math content? Because they're having to do both at the same time, right? right. Here's what I guess the big idea I want to drive home. You will he still hear from time to time, well, you teach them English and I'll teach them science, but it doesn't work that way, right? Because it takes years to learn English. So if you're, and there's only one pace that we can go. So what we have to do is teach the content at the same time. Because I got to learn science and math too, right? Yes, yes, exactly. Great point. The, uh, hey, you mentioned something I want to make sure, I want to uh, make sure you uh, just tell them, you, you use the word chunking. Can you say what uh, chunking is? You know what, we learn better, all of us, in smaller pieces. So when I train teachers, we open, that's 10% with something compelling and riveting. 
We don't talk more than 11 minutes, even in high school. And now we turn it over to students. So there needs to be that pace. And you can always tell with students' behavior and their, their body language that it's getting to be a little too long. So for every student, we want short pieces, now do, now you do, now you do. Now I will even say to students, it's your turn. Now it's your turn, turn to a partner. So we want those short breaks because if it's too much, too much, too much, we used to think high schoolers, matter of fact, in one of my books I used, Eric Jensen's research which was 15 minutes in high school, but the reality is it's really more around 11 wow. that we can hang on. And what we're talking about really is how long can I truly listen to Dr. Mileto talk <laughs> before I need to what? I got to do something. Yes. I was right? going to say, Give me careful how you answer that question there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can listen to you go on all day, but I'm just saying. Right 11 now, minutes is what I'm saying, Dr. Mileto. I got you. Minutes. I got you. I heard it loud and clear. I got I to gotta get that talk down. There's okay, a lot of formative assessment. How many minutes? 11. <laughs> 11's good. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I'm listening. I'm listening to you. <laughs> There are a lot of people that have uh, been in my presentations or in my classes right now. They're going, what? 11 minutes. He can't do it. <laughs> so, <laughs> but that's awesome. Thank, thank you. That's, and that, I appreciate you taking some time to explain that. And, and it's, you know, it, make, it makes perfect sense because you do, if you pay attention to them, you do see the body language starting to tell you, you know, could you change the channel, please? <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so let's move on. In chapter three, I had a hard time getting out of so I got a couple questions from there and it's because of what it's all about in readers. It's called chapter three is called readers in peril. And this comment appears, what parents and caretakers do to nurture reading readiness and preschoolers can significantly impact their future success. Could you share a little bit about, uh, about this? Wow. Let me tell you the chapter three is on reading. And I, I say in the introduction, it was the hardest chapter to write and probably the hardest one to read. <laughs> because it's so big, right? Let me, I, what I was taken aback by is if a district truly wants to move those scores, let's try to start before we meet them because a lot happens before we meet our children at five. It's staggering. A child who's read to every day of the week, six or seven times, they are going to start school an entire year ahead. Now school's gonna seem kind of easy and fun, right? And they're gonna soar. Now, another group of kids who are read to three times a day, three times a week, are highly likely to be in the top quartile. But here's what's fascinating: it's not just the top quartile or a year ahead in kindergarten or one. It continues. They're, they'll carry they carry this research out to ages ten and eleven. Those students got such a great head start that they're still doing super well at ten, eleven, and beyond. We don't, you know, I don't know how how far it extends. The power of reading at home. Now, why? I, I really relied on one of our treasures in this country, Sally Shaywitz, who is a premier reading researcher. She talks about how reading is not even natural for the human brain. It's a human invention. I never thought about it that way. Yeah. I mean, so it's, it's not, we don't, we're not born to just read. We're born to speak. Like Susie, I'm born to speak. So the reality is it is a process over time when they're little of learning about these random squiggly symbols, the alphabet, how it makes a sound, how there are beginnings and ends, and how it's a journey that the child is on. And she calls it the reading code. So we have students who come into our schools already who've already unlocked the puzzle, the code. They figured out how this all works in reading. So if we wanna really give our kids a boost, 
everything can, we can do prior to fit, to being in kindergarten. And then of course, we got to have great reading programs in kindergarten. But I'm a believer that from, you know, you know how in third grade, we talk about how we've gone from learning to read to reading to learn, right? right. I'm a big believer that we continue working on that reading from third grade, sixth grade, ninth grade, 12th grade. I believe that every teacher needs to come equipped with reading strategies in hand because I'm not just a high school science teacher. I got to teach my, help my kids navigate science text, navigate social studies text. If we create really good readers, they can do what? They can learn just about anything on their own. You know what? When I was writing this book, I had to think back about why I was a good reader. You know what it was? We had a bookmobile. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> See, I was in the city of Houston. My, my little area was not big enough for a library hot day in Houston, Texas, and this wonderful lady in an air-conditioned bus would pull up, and she'd let us take home six or seven books, and we could sit in these red velvet seats with the air conditioner cranked up, and boy, was reading good. I associated reading with air conditioning, and I could, I could just, as many books, and I would go home and bring back more, and, and it's, it's that early reading that really helps. And all students' brains have to go through this process, and some students, one thing that I found super fascinating is reading is not, it has very little to do with IQ, okay? There are brilliant people, as we know, who what? Have difficulty moving those symbols into the language system, okay? It's what we typically call dyslexia, right? And, and so it's, it's, it's really a process in the brain that takes time. So the earlier we get those kids going on that journey, the, the better that journey is going to be for them. That's awesome. And it's, it's so powerful to get to develop an understanding about that. Um, just simply because, you know, it, it, you kind of overlook that because you, a lot of times it's a, you know, my, my classroom experience was all high school and, you know, you expect them to, although you know that many of them aren't at the same level, you expect them to come close to that, whereas many of them may not and have no interest in reading and, you, and they struggle with that, you know. You know, one thing that really was hard for me to read and study and read about writing the book is the toll it takes, which is why I, I use the title Vulnerable Learners. If you are not a good reader, they describe themselves, I mean, this is heartbreaking, I get choked up talking about it. They describe themselves differently. They physically wanna hide. They don't wanna come to school. They are sick more often. If they do not grasp this reading code and become a proficient reader, school becomes not a very positive place because imagine, remember I talked about courage, imagine being called upon to read. And if you're not a good reader, what does that feel like? Oh, it's terrible. Let's and see. everybody in the class is going to see and hear you, right? right? Everybody's looking at you. At least you feel that way. <laughs> so that's what I mean by vulnerable. They may, they may act out, shut down, but the reality is, is it, is it going back to reading? Every, I'm just a huge believer in everything we can do on reading is going to pay dividends. And guess what? Here's the good news. If you're a math teacher or math educator, guess what? Those kids score higher in math too. <laughs> yes. Makes so. sense. You know, one of the things, and you already mentioned it just a little bit, you know, out of, out of chapter three is that you do, you delve into dyslexia and, and the issues that surround learning. Uh, could you talk about why a teacher needs to have knowledge and understanding pertaining to what a dyslexic child faces in the typical classroom? Well, it's, it really is about the huge relevance and importance and how, according to the researchers, they're going to learn the same way. They just need a little, maybe more time. They need more time learning this. And I think what it speaks to is to really revisit our reading programs and make sure they're very solid in terms of evidence-based reading. Um, and, and that we're really using some great strategies there to really teach reading 
So yeah, I, th I think we're all over it though right now. I mean, what's happened in the last few years is parent groups have really, as you know, in states around the country and the world, really making sure that it's evidence-based reading. And and people are aware of this. I don't want to go on not about it, but what we may, some people might not know, for many years we've had these things called the reading wars and how reading should be taught. Right. So many years ago, the, the U.S. government put together this group and, and, what, and, this was, and it was a massive amount of research. So there's a ton of research about how to dig in and really make sure your reading program is evidence-based. Gotcha. So thank you. And it, by the way, before we leave, I, I, you, you made a comment that I did good, I, but I got to throw in this, my two cents, because I too was in a community where there was a bookmobile and it had air conditioning. We were in, I grew up in Daytona <laughs> Beach, Florida, and uh, you know, that uh, there was the bookmobile. And the, the great thing was it was not too far from my elementary school to walk there. And what it did was it pulled into the parking lot of a 7-Eleven. All right. Now, I this is not a commercial for 7-Eleven, but they had this awesome drink called a Slurpee. <laughs> and combined with the, I could check out all these books. I could go in there, actually spend time in there. But it was so crowded that they would only let you stay in for so long because the number of kids wanted to get in there. So check out all these books. And I was always given a little bit of money so that after I was finished hanging out in the air conditioning, I could then go into the air conditioning of the 7-Eleven and buy myself a Slurpee. <laughs> well, now, that's and, uh, pretty exciting childhood memory there. And you know, we could do, there are things we could, so many things we could do. Like when I was in a, a building once, I had the li someone from the librarian come to our open house and give out book uh, uh, library cards right there. Nice. You know, let's merge. We don't need to be in silos. Right. Let, let's merge the library with the schools. And then in the summers, could we open up and have reading time in our libraries? I mean, there are solutions to these things, right? To reach into neighborhoods to get those books. There still are bookmobiles out there, by the way. I did yes. some research on that. So bring back the bookmobile. Very much so. Very much so. <laughs> and they are out there, and uh, which is really cool. So let's, so let's move on forward to, to chapter four, uh, Trapped in an Age-Based System. And I pulled this comment out of there. Today's schools use more rigid groups based on age rather than ability. Why is this an issue? You know, this chapter probably would surprise people. What in the world are gifted kids doing in a book about vulnerable learners? <laughs> so what I learned in a lot of this research is every state, some states don't have gifted programs at all. Now, the state in which I live has a strong gifted program but other states do not. So they technically have no gifted children on their roles. So, and, and it's not an, a federal, there are no federal funds for gifted programs. I mean, I mean, there are some, but, but very little. Okay. So it's not even something that we talk about that much. So one of the things is, it is really with giftedness. What are we expecting from them? So, and how are we teaching them? So I learned a lot about this uh, in terms of where we're going to go with our gifted programs. The age-based thing, this may be controversial, but what I discovered in reading is a lot, there are a lot of people out there who are advocating for this, just move them on. For example, if you're teaching a student in fourth grade who is clearly at a sixth grade math level or a seventh grade math level, what could we do? In math, have a seventh grade math teacher work with them. Right, right. So some of that, that's, that's kind of the thinking right now is, are there times where we can entirely skip grades? Because, you know, their gifted children kind of get along more with their teachers sometimes than their <laughs> age-based kids, right? Yes, very much so. Right? So it, it's, it's a pretty complicated thing. But I, I use the, the analogy of an athlete who's super athletic, does great, and we move that athlete along, don't we? We let them play at the highest level possible. I use a tennis player, for example. 
So could we do that in our buildings? If we have a student who's reading very far along, math very far along, what could we do differently as opposed to keeping them with their age? Because we're based in this country by your birthday, right? Right. This is your birthday. This is your grade as opposed to where your math is. So that's sort of the case I make. We'll see what people think of it. <laughs> I thought it was cool. So I, it if makes sense to me. If you have a problem, email Dr. Mileto. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> this will challenge your thinking believe me this chapter this is awesome and it's it's right up there because it's you know uh, i've worked in systems where a lot of times the the most gifted of the children are ones who at some point they they also run into problems with the law they also run into problems with the authority of the building and a lot of times they end up you know wanting to go you know can i just can I skip all over this? I'll just take your test and you just, then let me out. All right. And you know, uh, you're right. And you know, it will surprise people, but gifted kids drop out of school. Yes. Just like other kids. Um, and one of the reasons they drop out is because they do feel that lack of relevance or challenge. Now I'm going to tell you something that's really unpopular. Some people believe that we keep them in those age brace groups because of testing. Cause you know, we want those kids testing, right? Oh Yeah. Everyone's tested. Everyone accounted for. Yes. Right. So I'm not saying that's happening. Yeah, that's a that's a difficult uh, another aspect of it is that it's just you know you have these these brains that are that are all that have all kinds of great stuff happening in them and uh, they if they run into too many people telling them no that's not the right way to think through that problem it only has one answer and it's this way and they're going yeah but I came out with 13 different answers you know or whatever. It, and, and you know what? We were going to talk about this later, but I have a website that's completely free. It was a passion project for me. It's myedexpert.com. I'm mentioning it because there's a guy on there who's one of my favorite gifted ed people in the world, Jerry Burkhart. He writes math problems that take three days to solve. Nice. He calls them intrepid, and it's he's about the wonder of math. So he's an example of those kind of resources for kids that, and there aren't that many kids we have in our classroom, right? Right. But there are a couple. So he kind of crafts things for those couple kids that, let's face it, some of those kids outpace us. Right. They outpace us in math. Very much so. And it's, you know, the, and the amazing thing is, is that it's not, it, in, in math it's amazing, but it's in all kinds of areas. It just d depends on what those areas are that the, where their giftedness is. And I, I mean, because I've seen kids who, I mean, just any number of areas that you're like, wow, you're, you're not you probably could do a, a beginning of a dissertation on this topic type thing. Right. And, you, and they're, they're working on a whole different level that then frustrates people around them as they, you know, one of the first things that comes to mind is sometimes in foreign language classes where, you know, they're, they're zipping along and the teacher's like, Whoa, you're, <laughs> you're like way ahead of all these other kids over here. And, and anyway, so, but good yeah, stuff. And they can be, you know, uh, different to teach. I remember they outpaced me. And when I was teaching science, uh, and I remember saying to them, let Miss Pepper look at that answer tonight. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like nice. I'm not real sure. <laughs> nice. Yeah, that's, that's always one of my favorite things is when you have like, you know, as a history teacher, there's usually somebody, especially at least one a, a term or a year who really loves history and really has a knowledge base in it. And, uh, and like you said earlier, these kids often talk with their teachers more. They find that teacher that they can identify with and they get into these conversations and, you know, it's amazing. I mean, it's just, I could, uh, you, you look at that and if you, if you frustrate that kid, if you hold them back or make them sit through all this stuff that they already have the concepts of, they start 
doing different things. You know, some of them can sit there and do that, but they start thinking about how much better their time could be served and in someplace else. So, but, uh, good stuff. A great chapter. I, I really good information there. Let, let's look at, uh, let's go into one more chapter. You have a, several more, but, uh, let, let's go into chapter five called hanging by a thread. You comment that frequent formative assessments are particularly critical for low-performing students in order to monitor their progress, to ascertain what's working for them, and to intervene quickly to fix issues. Why should a teacher take the time to understand this, and what's it look like? You know, I wish that the, the, the phrase of the term formative assessment didn't have assessment attached to it, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. Because all it is is an instructional strategy to just peek inside your brain really quickly, and let's just see how you're doing. But with kids who are maybe not doing super well, I'll give you my best one, and those are sticky notes. I burn through them like crazy. So if I'm just, we'll just teach a little bit and say, you know what, everybody's nodding their heads. Let's just try one sticky note. I can get a student to do just about anything on a sticky note. I never use thumbs up because I cannot say that your child's thumb was 78 degrees in the air and I think pretty sure we're solid, right? Because <laughs> she had her thumb up. Yes. So what I do is a sticky note. Hey, everybody stop, drop, let's do one. We splash them up. It gives them a chance to get out of their, out of their desk, right? Those explorers and desks. There you go. Get them up, put them up, and we give some quick feedback. What happens in your brain when you get some quick feedback? That felt pretty good, didn't it? Yeah. You got a little time with your teacher. You were on target, or you may have gotten it completely right. And what does that do? That releases endorphins in the brain. And you're like, boom, I'm successful. So one of the challenges with kids who have not been successful in school for a while, it has to be genuine. I can't just keep telling you you can do it because that is empty. What I can do is see some evidence that, yes, you just did do it. And that makes a student want to keep going, right? It needs to be sincere because they, they know that it, it, when it's not sincere. So I use quick checks like that right on their desk. A lot of teachers today, they just have them right on their desk. Answer on your desk. Use a sticky note. Turn to your partner. Everybody stand up. That's what I mean by a formative assessment. Nothing we're going to grade. We're not going to. And, of course, you can use a lot of technology with that as well. Uh, but but there's nothing like a sticky note that a student will tell you. And you know what? In a thousand students, I've had one student not do a sticky note. And you know what? She held that sticky note tightly, and she was so concerned that she'd made an error. And what did that tell me about her? She did give me feedback, though, didn't she? I did. Sure did. So I just said to her, it's a sticky note. Don't worry about it. So in my mind, I've already got her uh, uh, some strategies planned for her. So quick checks right on the desk, we're building, we're crescendoing, right? We're, we're chunking, we're building so that you're ready to do independent work. That's awesome. I, and I appreciate you sharing that. And it's, it's such an amazing tool. And, you know, sometimes it's just, it, you, you, you're figuring out whether they're getting it or not and taking the time to do it before waiting for a couple of weeks and then trying to figure out whether they get it or not. And that's a little late then. You know? Well, you know, we always call that in education, the autopsy. I always kind of cringe when I hear that, but you yes. know, it's a little late. <laughs> a little late. Like I had a, one of my favorite teachers. She said that she used to, I used to use a lot of surveys throughout the year. Like I had students tell me how that lesson worked for it. Cause I'm fearless. Tell Miss Pepper how that worked for you. And I'd have nice. stuff like, I don't know, I slept through half of it. I mean, I had little <laughs> things that they would tell me. Right. And, and then I had a friend of mine. She said, well, yeah, I used to give that on the last day of school. Well, it's a little late. <laughs> We're getting on the bus. I'm probably never going to see you again. That is a little late, yes. A little late. <laughs> a little late to be doing that formative assessment, Stephen. And what's sad is that it's, it's real. <laughs> so it's like, that's what's like, oh, my gosh. So, all right. So. 
you know, so we've taken a look at some of your chapters and stuff like this. I love, like I said, your book has got all kinds of great ideas. It's, you, you focus on these vulnerable learners. They're going to learn a lot about that and why they're vulnerable and why they need to know something about them. You're, and then you get into the strategies and, and uh, techniques that they should be taking a look at to bring to the classroom to help address uh, the, the needs of those children. Um, you know, we're getting close to finishing and you've already mentioned it just a little bit, but do you want to mention anything else about my ed expert before we uh, shift gears? No, no, it's just a place to get great resources. I, what I did is got some other people who are authors and things and asked them, hey, could you contribute some resources on there? That's all it is. So you're going to find some math. There's a great guy named Todd Stanley who's one. He built the, he's that guy that you think, where does he think of this stuff? <laughs> nice. Like he has the case of the big bad wolf, my 600 pound, you know, they're, these are just innovative things that you can just click on and go shopping. Very cool. Very Have cool. some fun. Love it. So, and you got to check it out because it is an incredible resource that you'll want to make use of. So, so Susie, if someone wanted to connect further with you, where would you send them? If they want to find me? Yes. Or learn more about you. To, or there are people and... trying to find me. Um, okay. <laughs> nice. So the best thing is SusiePepperRollins.com and it's S-U-Z-Y. SusiePepperRollins.com. That's my website. You can just send me an email there. If you want to check out Math in the Fast Lane, it's super cool. It's hands-on kind of learning. It's not, no worksheets are on there. Very much so. <laughs> Very cool. So That's how Susie rolls. <laughs> and we will have, uh, I'll have those links in the show notes. So you'll be able to find her there. You'll be able to find that website. And uh, very cool. So uh, last two questions, and they go like this. The first one is, if you had the chance to talk with an auditorium filled with brand new teachers, who are getting ready to step into the classroom for the first time, what would you want to share with them? Well, the first thing I would tell them is this book right here, I dedicated to three of my high school teachers. Neat. And I didn't just learn social studies and that stuff from them. I, I watched them. I learned how they spoke with each other, how they, how they treated me. And I don't remember a lot of that about their lessons. Now, I'm, I'm glad they, I'm sure they had some great ones. <laughs> But I remember one of them took me to a college campus, first time I'd ever been on a college campus. The power of what we do is awe-inspiring. And in this book, it just drove it home to me again, the power of being a teacher. It, and so every day is not going to be perfect. You're going to go home so tired and start getting your resume together, you know, to sell insurance or something. But the reality is that there's nothing better than being a classroom teacher and nothing more important. So you just regroup. We make some mistakes. I'm all about apologizing to the kids. Hey, I didn't handle that super well. I'm going to do a better job tomorrow. Um, so you don't, you're not going to be perfect. It's a long day, but always just know the power of being a teacher, how, how, how influential you are to these kids. I, I still remember them. Very cool. Cause that is, it, it this, those lessons stay with you. There's, you know, reasons why you remember them and they usually aren't their lessons. It's because of them being people with treating you as people and uh, this cool stuff. You know, one of them, um, I, I guess it was a counselor with a sense of humor, put me in the draw in the uh, speech and debate department. You know, I guess that was the only thing available that or ROTC. <laughs> I don't know, but the next thing you know, I'm in this class and she's one I did and I don't have any, I've, I've, I don't even know her personally. But she forced me to be on the debate team. And boy, did that make me a better, a stronger student. Very and cool. so you just never know what you're teaching and what they're going to latch on and use, you know? You got that right. Cool stuff. Thank you. Thank you. So last question. When things get difficult or there are too many issues all coming at once and you kind of want to quit, 
How do you overcome those feelings and keep going? If you're a classroom teacher? Yes. Well, you know, of course, you want to have some people around you, right? You, you want to have, you want to have a, a mentor, a friend, a next door teacher that you can talk to, but, you, but don't be so hard on yourself. Okay, regroup. I'll tell you one thing that I've learned over the years is to focus on my lessons, as simple as that sounds. If I focus on constructing really compelling lessons and I put the time in for that, most new teachers are worried about classroom management. If I focus on these lessons, I'm not going to have a lot of classroom management issues normally. Now, I may have a couple. doesn't eliminate everything. So I would focus on the learning experiences, find a mentor, and not be so hard on yourself. Excellent advice. I love it. Well, Susie, thank you so much for talking with me today. Congratulations on your incredible book, Teaching Vulnerable Learners, Strategies for Students Who Are Bored, Distracted, Discouraged, or Likely to Drop Out. Once again, you've created an easy-to-use and practical tool that all educators should make plans to read and put to work in their classrooms and schools. I'm wishing you, all the, I'm wishing you the best in all you do. Well, the same to you. You're wonderful. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is excited to be a member of Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. The opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions for classroom teachers and school administrators. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll share it with your friends.